So hey, uh, if you guys have been around here for a little while, you know that um, I'm slowly working through the book of 1 John uh, when it's my turn up here. Uh, and so far, 1 John has been beloved, my dearest little children, and then I hit a test. Are you in the faith? Uh, it teaches truths and doctrines about who Jesus is. Um, it's not always an easy book. God's word is not always easy. God's word has that corrective uh, nature. It has the training nature. It has the rebuking and it has the teaching nature as well as it comforts us. Some things I love about the book of 1 John is, we, is, is where we find some of our assurances of salvation. 1 John 5, 11 and 12 says, this is the testimony God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has a son has life. He has, does not have the son of God, does not have life. I love those assurances we have in this book of 1 John, reminding us of our hope in Christ. So keeping that in mind, we've, we, we've worked through chapter 1 and chapter 2 to verse 17 so far. And we've seen three distinct tests. We've seen the test of our doctrine. Uh, chapter 1 at the beginning talks about uh, who Jesus is, that he was fully man, that he was fully God, that he was deity, that he was made manifest, he was no, made known to man. And in chapter 2, it talks about how he is our advocate, our great high priest, how he has paid the penalty for our sins. It also convicts us in regards to sin issues in our life and, and reminds us in verse John 1 verse 9 that we are to keep short accounts with our God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And he talked about our love from God, for God, for mankind. The love test, the doctrine test, and a sin or morality test. So as we hit verse 18, it feels like not the easiest passage I've ever read in my life. So let's just read through from verse 18 through the end of the chapter and we'll see what we can make of this. Children, in the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So, that, so now, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it may be, might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father." And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive. Some translations will say seduce you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has been taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So, let's just dive in. 
Starts off children. He's, re- he's addressing that church uh, probably in Ephesus and us as well. It's, it's, it's applicable to then and it's applicable 2,000 years later to us now. It's something we need to know. And the first thing he says is, children, it is the last hour. You know, it's interesting. We hear this last hour and sometimes it's hard to get our minds around. It's an argument that people have used for many years uh, against Christianity. You guys have been saying it's the end times for the last 2,000 years. Nothing's changed. That's an attitude that's been said many times. Maybe sometimes it even comes into the back of our minds. How come it's 2,000 years later and it's still the end times or the last minutes, the last hours? But you know, when we start questioning what God's word says, we start to become like the scoffers that Peter mentions in 2 Peter chapter 3. Chapter 3, uh, 3 verse 7 says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So there they're saying, guess what? Nothing's changed. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water through the wor- uh, by the word of God and that by, me- that by means of these... the Sorry, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But now the same words in heaven and earth now exist and are stored up for fire and being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. These scoffers before the time of Noah, that we, we know what the, the word tells us about the days of Noah. It was wild and crazy and scoffers. And the Lord said, that's it. I'm hitting the reset button. That's when we start questioning what God's word says, we start becoming the scoffers. And what we need to remember when we think about the timeline, the, the 2,000 years that we say, oh, not much has changed, we need to remember 1 Peter 3, 8, the next verse. We got to remember that God's clock doesn't function like our clock. I'm watching, the, if I watch the clock there, it's very meticulous. We know we divide you know, um, years into months and months into days and, or into weeks and weeks into days, days into hours, hours, minutes, minutes, seconds, so on and so forth. But God says, do not, look, do not overlook the fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. To me, that's the big thing is that, you know, it's God's mercy and grace that he has not yet returned. For how many of us in this room, if God had returned five years ago or ten years ago, would not have come to know the Lord, would not have come to be saved, would not come to have hope for our future. It's God's grace and mercy that he is holding back until all have come that are going to come to know him. When I think of the biblical timeline and this whole thing, I think God is so gracious, he's holding back. You know, he says in Romans chapter 2 that his kindness leads us to repentance. And when I think of the biblical timeline, I think of a, of a, of a um, uh, not a marathon, a, uh, a medley race. You know, when you pass the baton, and I think of, you know, different eras in time as being the different runners going around that track. And, you know, the time has come. The baton's been passed from, you know, the, the creation to the time of the patriarchs to the time of Israel as a nation to the time of Christ. And it, 
you know, when I think of it, I think of that when Jesus died, ro- uh, died, rose again, and reascended into heaven, that the baton was passed to the last runner. And the last runner is running that last lap right now. When I think of the end time, I'm thinking the last hour, we are in the last lap of the race. You know, one commentator said it this way. He said, he said I, I honestly believe the Lord's going to come in the next 50-ish years, ish, ish, ish. Because he said, you know, if the Lord doesn't come soon, he's going to have to set up the exact, almost the exact same political and economic situation that we have in our world today the next, when he determines this time to come. We are, I believe, coming around the last corner before the finish line on the last runner. The baton is near. And so far the church and God's people are being held as a purifying presence on the world as he is kind and patient with us. You know, the Apostle John, writing this letter in 60 or 70 AD, had an eager expectation of the Lord's return, irrelevant of not knowing the date that Jesus was coming back. He believed it could have been in his lifetime. And I I believe it very likely may be in my lifetime and yours. But you know what? No matter what, if Jesus returns while I'm still standing with breath in my lungs, or if I die first, either either's great. Either either's great. I believe as believers we're to live with eager expectation as we look towards the finish line. I want to be able to, you know, uh, be like Paul who said, you know, to be here or to be with the Lord, you know, whichever. I don't know what's better. We're to look with eager expectation. Not be worried that it's been 2,000 years and the same word is used that it's the last days. I believe it's the last days. I believe we're so close. So he says, children, it's the last hour. And then he talks about this big A word that gets kicked around the church. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know it is the last hour. I thought I'd find it interesting. He also says, as you have heard. You know what? Um, The early apostles, they taught from the Old Testament prophecy right from day one. The early church was aware that the end times are coming. The early church was aware that there was going to be this Antichrist coming, all this stuff. The apostles taught from the Old Testament to the revelation of Christ, his first coming and his second coming. So it's nothing new, the teaching about this. And then we get to that word, the Antichrist, the word itself. When I think of anti, my first thought always goes to against or in opposition to, right? You know, I think uh, someone who's anti Gateway Northern Project. Uh, I don't know, maybe you are, maybe you aren't. Anti-government, anti-taxes. Just look at our, our culture today, our culture of protest. We, are, we tend to be anti, 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 anti. When I think of anti, that's what I think of, against of, in opposition to. But the original language, there's two meanings to that anti. It is that first meaning that we, I just mentioned, but it's also in place of, like a substitutionary which I find very interesting when we think of the word antichrist. Christ means Messiah or our Savior. I find it fascinating that 
the idea of Antichrist can also be a replacement savior, someone who's calling himself a savior, an invalid, false savior. In this verse, there's Antichrist is mentioned twice, and it's in two different kind of forms. One, I would call a capital A, and one, a small a. The first one is that what we tend to first think of, of, of Antichrist, the capital A. You know, it's interesting. This man will rise... Scripture tells us that Daniel talks about it, Revelation talks about it, and they'll set, he'll, he'll rise to power, uh, probably be a, a world dictator. He's going to broker a, a peace deal that no one's been able to broker in the Middle East. He's going to break it in three and a half years. Revelation 13 talks about him receiving a mortal wound and surviving it and people worshiping him. He's coming in his own name. Jesus talks about the Antichrist. In John chapter 5, verse 43, he talks about the Antichrist will come in his own name. Exact opposite of Jesus. Jesus came in the name of God the Father, and he came to fulfill the purpose that God had for him, honoring and glorifying God the Father. Exact opposite. You know, many suggest that the Antichrist will have a cult-like following, will be popular beyond popular doesn't take much in our current culture to look around and see how we worship and idolize celebrities and political figures like never before in history. It doesn't, it's no stretch of an imagination. You know, some question, is he just a man or is it a system? Is it a government? And you know what? I believe that we're talking about a man who's controlling a government. And I think they're inseparable. I think it's like saying that, it's like saying Hitler and sort of Nazi Germany. You can't really take the two apart. They are together. So the Antichrist. You know, I don't really feel qualified to really teach about the Antichrist. I, I'm totally intimidated about this, honestly. Um, and these are just a few little gleanings about the Antichrist. And I got, I got to say, I was really blessed that I got a set of notes from Julie's grandfather who pastored all his life and is now in his 80s. And he had a whole set of notes on old, old time. Um, on uh, prophecy, and I got the, my hands on them, and he had a whole chapter about the Antichrist, which I was able to go through. It was a, it was a real blessing, um, and it's kind of neat because it's Julie's grandfather, but I, I divulge. But uh, anyhow, one other interesting com- comment that people, some commentators say about the Antichrist, and I'm not going to necessarily say that this is the gospel truth, but it's just something to think about. It's very interesting. In Revelation, it says that the, his name will be a man's number, right? It'll be 666. You know, people talk about that, the son of perdition, the man of lawlessness, and his number, na- name number 666. The only other time in Scripture that 666 is mentioned is in regards to the salary that Solomon, King Solomon, got. It's just interesting that King Solomon was a good man gone bad. Maybe the Antichrist will be a good man gone bad. I don't know. It's just an interesting thought. Very interesting thought. But then John goes on and he warns about the Antichrists. Plural, small a. What does he say about them? So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So not only have there been a bunch of antichrists, so there's this the figure, and then there's a smaller sense of it. <clears throat> the idea that people have come, and they've maybe 
started off good. They've come, and it says they've gone out from us. So maybe they start off in a church or, or as believers and, and strayed away from the truth. They let go of the tenets of the faith. And next thing you know, they became a cult and it became self-glorification. That's the attitude or spirit of an antichrist. There's so much of it in our culture right now. I watched the little snippets of that. Did anyone watch that Ken Ham, Bill Nye debate about uh, creation? Anyhow, I just watched a couple snippets, but what I thought was the most interesting thing was that Bill Nye, the science guy, stood up there and said, my hope is that science will allow America to be financially prosperous. That is my hope. The man's hope is in a system of government, in a country, in financial wealth, in not in Christ. It's opposite, opposing. There's no hope at all. We know every major kingdom and nation on the earth has fallen. I'm not an economist, but I know that things don't look great down there if you're trusting in the American economy for your hope in life. How many people are we, how many of us in the world are trusting in things? So they went out from us and it proved they were not from us. For if they had been with us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it may be plain that they not, are not of us. You know, some of these guys straight up, they're going to come out of churches. They're going to come out of families that are of believers. But there's something that I think a church that holds to God's word is going to see happen. You're going to actually see these guys. They're not going to be able to handle being under God's word. They're not going to be able to handle being under God's teaching because God's word trains us in, regard, in regards to our sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. Right? All scriptures, God breathed and used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. There's going to be a purging effect, I think, in a church that holds to the truth. Either that or they're going to come and repent before the Lord, be convicted of their sin, and come to know the Lord, and then, in fact, prove not to be antichrist. You know, there's one other thing that I think is very interesting. Uh, it's speaking specifically of the Antichrist, but there's an element here. He says, for if they had been with us, they would have continued with us. You know, I want to be a follower of Christ that finishes strong. I want to be a follower of Christ that I can be like, like Paul in 2 Timothy saying, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. I want to be able to say that. I want to finish strong. I want to continue in fellowship with my Savior, with his bride, the church, the body of Christ. Matthew 3, verse 8 says that we are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance as believers. That's what I want for my life. I don't want to break fellowship from God's bride. I don't want to break fellowship from his word. I don't want to break fellowship in my life. I would say this if you got family or friends that have hung out in the church for many years and maybe they got burned by one of us sinners that happens to be sitting here like all the rest of us here and have decided to walk away from the body of Christ altogether I'd encourage you to challenge them to return to the bride of Christ think of the story of the prodigal son he thought life would be better without his dad without 
all that stuff. And what did he do? He went and ran away and he found himself eating pig slop. And when he came back and humbled himself before the Lord, he came back into fellowship and he was brought back into full fellowship. You know, there's people that are probably sitting in this room right now. I know there's people who are part of our fellowship who they got burned by something or whatever and spent some time away. And they've been brought back into the body of Christ as active members in fellowship. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. They're finishing strong. It's a challenge for our hearts. If we get burned by someone, we are all people within our churches. We're all sinners, whether we're in leadership, whether we're not, whether whoever we are, we're all sinners and make mistakes. But I challenge you not to disassociate from the bride of Christ if you're feeling isolated or stung. Verse 20 says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. Now talking about us. And you have all knowledge. Anointed, you know, it's that idea of being anointed with oil. Anytime we see oil in the scripture, it's it's the picture of the Holy Spirit. It's a symbol of the filling of the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 10, 38 tells us, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went out doing good and healing and all were impressed, and all who were impressed by, or, and healing all were who were impressed by the devil, for God was with him. He was healing people, setting them free from, from the devil. It's an idea of being set apart, being anointed. There's an element of preparation. I think of when King David was, was anointed as a young man, even long before he went into service in the, in the nation, he was anointed, a, a preparation. You know, we as believers is telling us we have the Holy Spirit. We have that oil from God on our lives if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. I can't forget about John chapter 15 when it talks about some of the functions of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He says that the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world in regards to sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. It's amazing how that that dovetails with the moral test, the love test, and the doctrine test. The moral test regarding the sin in our lives, the issues that we deal with. The love test regarding living right before God. And the doctrine test, if we understand there's a judgment to come and who Jesus is, the propitiation as we talked about in the beginning of chapter three, that penalty being paid, the advocate, the Holy Spirit convicts us in regards to these three tests that John has been laying out for our lives as a measure of where we are with our walk with God. He goes on to say, and you have all knowledge. You know, sometimes this can be kind of confusing. Uh, I don't have all knowledge. I don't know everything if we talk about knowing everything. I think what the idea is is kind of reflected in John chapter 16. Verse 13, when it says, the spirit of truth comes and he will guide you into all truth. You know what? I don't believe that we can understand anything truly from the word of God without his spirit. I don't think that we can hear someone speak something without, and have it touch our hearts without the Holy Spirit prompting us. I don't believe that anyone can get up here and say a word without the Holy Spirit working in our lives. We have knowledge because the Holy Spirit gives us the tools of discernment to know truth from evil. He gives us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. 
see what truth is. He goes on, verse 21, he says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is in the truth. Kind of simple. The truth is the truth, right? I think the idea is keep truth in the foreground in our lives. You know, we live in this crazy society, right? You know, I look at our world and I say we're primed for the very end. And part of the reason we're primed for the very end is because it's getting to be like the days before Noah. There's no absolutes, there's no morals, there's, there's no measure of truth on our society. How many times have you heard someone say, well, if it's good for you or if it's true for you? There's no absolute. Anything goes. Society tells us, the world tells us that we are our own. What does scripture say? We are bought with a price. So they tell us that we are self-made men and women. Uh-uh, I'm made in the image of my God. Anything I can do is his empowerment. The world tells us we got to agree with all deviant lifestyles. And God lays down a moral guideline for what is family and what is husbands and wives. The world tells us that there's no sanctity of life and we call it choice. And God loves life. Tells us do not kill. The world says all roads lead to God. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. You know, I like the definition of insanity. Insanity is being out of touch with reality, is it not? Reality is Jesus Christ. When we are sane, we are clinging to the reality of Jesus Christ. Our society is insane. It's crazy. And what has it done? It has let go of Jesus Christ. I challenge you this morning, how have you formed your worldview? We live in this crazy world. How have you challenged your, how formed your worldview? Have you formed your worldview based on what maybe teachers have said, the media says, or have you formed your worldview on the rea- based on the reality of Jesus Christ? The truth Truth is the truth. He goes on in verse 22 and says, Who is a liar but he who denies the Christ, that, that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has the Son. So he's going to dive in. So some markers of what an Antichrist is. Anyone who denies Jesus to be the Christ has walking around with a spirit of Antichrist. We see this, we've seen this in culture, in places. Uh, I, I can never pronounce a guy or get the name quite right, but there's, I believe it's in Korea. It's something Sung or something like that. And he's got a huge church, and he has declared himself to be the Messiah in place of. He is an antichrist. He denies that Christ, our Messiah, our Savior, is the denial. When we if we are willing to compromise on the truths of the gospel, the truths of the doctrine test that Jesus was fully man, that Jesus was fully God, that he is our advocate, our great high priest before the throne of God, that he has paid our penalty for sin, that he is 
the Son of God, the one and only Son of God. When we start attacking that, or when it's attacked, when we attack the fact that he is preexistent, as Colossians 1.16 tells us, he is there, was there at creation. If we, if, we, if we allow the virgin birth to be attacked, the death, the resurrection, it becomes antichrist attitudes. The text, is, the text is clear. There's no access to the Father except through the Son. You know, we'll never be able to grasp the love that the Father has bestowed on us as it as says in Romans 5 that God demonstrated his love to us in this way while we're still sinners. Christ died for us. When there's no reason, Christ died for us. We'll never grasp the Father's love if we don't understand and know Jesus Christ. You know, in, in our lives, I've been cha- I was challenging this a little bit uh, as I was searching, uh, wrestling through this passage, that the most important question that I can ask someone, you know, maybe someone's come knocking your door to talk about things. The most important question that we can ask is not, what would Jesus do? You know, the adage, WWJD. Yeah, that's good. But who is Jesus? That is the important question. The only answer is that he is God. He is the son of God. He is the, came to earth to save my, for my sins. He's an atoning sacrifice. He is not a good man merely. He is not merely a prophet. He is not the brother of Lucifer. He is not Michael the archangel. It's a pass-fail test. Jesus is my Christ, my Messiah. He died on the cross for me. He is a propitiation for my sins. He's paid the penalty. And he intercedes on my behalf. It's the only answer that really matters. I was challenged in that. I was challenged to study the reality, not the evil. Study the reality, and I'll be able to know what the evil is because I know the reality. So here the text changes tones a little bit. He's been talking about what to watch out for. Be aware of, be aware of these antichrists, these antichrist attitudes. And the, the tone changes halfway through verse 23 and says, whoever confesses the son has the father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the son and in the father. And this is the promise he has made us. Great promise. Eternal life. First, he says, whoever confesses. There's a very important thing in our lives about confessing what we believe. Romans 10, uh, 9 through 11 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For as with your heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. I challenge you, if you're here this morning and you know Jesus and you have not stood up and made a public declaration of your faith at baptism, man, I encourage you, get baptized. There's something about standing up before God and his people and saying, I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ. A good confession. Confessing in the Son, you have received the love of the Father, received the Father as well. It means we become adopted children of God the Father. And then in 1 John 3, 1, it tells us, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called sons of God. What a great promise. We need to believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. 
goes on to say, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. In you, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. What you have heard in the beginning, abide. Let it abide in you. Uh, last time, uh, I used the analogy of the, of the gondola at Whistler. You know, when the little cars, they come off the cable, and then they come back on, and they clamp on. And, you know, the idea of abiding isn't just rest. The idea of abiding is coming alongside, it's clinging to, it's holding on to. You know, that clamp on the gondola, that's like a lifesaver. You don't want to be on the peak-to-peak chair and have the clamp come loose halfway through. You know, the cable and its system is doing the work. It's pulling us up the hill so we can have a good time coming back. Well, that's not a good spiritual uh, analogy. (laughs) The good time coming back down. We'll forget about that part of it. But going up the hill, that that, that that cable and system is doing the work and is dragging us up. Our job is to clamp onto the cable that's doing the real work. It's to clamp, and it says that he will, <clears throat> if, you, if you abide uh, he, from the beginning, then he too will abide in you. It's like we clamp onto the cable of Jesus Christ, and he clamps onto us. There's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does, hanging on to us tight, taking us from our crap, our stuff, our sin, and changing us and sanctifying us and growing us in righteousness as we move more and more to becoming Christ-like. And he says, what you've heard from the beginning, let it abide. There's something beautiful about the simplicity of God's word. There's something beautiful about the simplicity of the gospel I think in chapter 2, verse 12, we were looking at, uh, you know, there was kind of the stages of spiritual growth laid out, these little children. And what did they know at the beginning? What, what did we first know when we came to know Jesus Christ? We knew that there was Jesus and our sins were forgiven. We can't let go of those basics. We can't get let go of what the early apostles' teachings was, who Jesus was, our need for a Savior, what he has done, his function as a high priest. We can never let go of the simple basics of what Jesus has done for us. We can never let go of that. We're to abide in the simplicity and beauty of our Lord as we study and grow. Never let go. When I think of abiding, um, it's an action thing, and sometimes it can can sound kind of pretty, oh, we abide with the Lord, and everything's going to be this wonderful spiritual experience all the time. Have you guys gone through times in your walk with the Lord where it feels dry? Or you, you open your Bible and, and it feels like you read is the last hour. You just, it's not, it feels like it's, you're not getting it. You ever come to church and, and, and struggle to sit through some guy talking about skiing down the hill? You know, we were talking in our home group uh, on Wednesday, and um, I had heard this analogy a while ago, and this guy said, you know, I've gone to church all my life, and I can't hardly remember one sermon, and you know, you know, the grumbly thing, right? Why do I even bother going? It's the same, it's the same, right? And a person's response was, hey, growing up, did your mom feed you three square meals a day? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And 
do you remember every meal? No. Did you grow and become healthy by the continual nourishment of your mother's food? Yes. There's an interesting thing about carrying on, even when it's tough. As we take in the meals of God's word, the meals of fellowshipping with God's people, there's going to be a growth that happens in our heart whether we actually realize it or not. You know, with that meal analogy, a friend of mine's mom, she probably shouldn't have cooked. She really shouldn't have. Like, you know, when I went there for supper, you just tried not to go there for supper. But you know what? It was simple. Sometimes it seemed pretty bland. But you know what? It was nutritious. And that family of five kids, they were healthy and they grew. And as they grew up, they were healthy. Sometimes when it feels bland coming to God's word, it's healthy and it's nutritious. We're not to give up, we're to abide in it. I challenge you guys, I struggle sometimes in my quiet times to be regular. I challenge you to get into God's word every day. Take a pen or a pencil and mark up your Bible. Make notes, underline it. Pray about what the Lord's showing you. Come hang out with his people. Fellowship in his presence. The promise of abiding is eternal life. John 3.16, we know it well. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. In John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and life to the full. It's a promise of everlasting life that starts today, good but abundant life, not just hanging out life, not just surviving life, good life. He carries on, he says, I write these things, verse 26, to you about those who are trying to deceive you. He was writing this stuff so, you could under, so we can understand when we're being deceived. He gave us some tips, but here's the reality. Satan is referred to as the great deceiver. He's all about counterfeit currency. Fake stuff, the stuff that the Bank of Canada will throw back at you and take back out of your account because it's fake. I was challenged that I need to be studying the true currency more and more and more. We've been anointed by God's Spirit and we've been given the ability that we don't need to be taught all these, every little thing. What that means is he's given us the ability to discern between truth and evil, good and bad, dark and light. Light casts out darkness. Darkness doesn't cast out light, as Carrie reminded me of just before the service. You know, if you're going to go work in the bank, they were going to train you so well in what the real currency looks like that when you get a fake bill that looks really good, you pick it up, it doesn't feel quite right. Or maybe it feels right, but the color's off. We know how to distinguish counterfeit by knowing what's real. knowing what's real. So verse 27 says, but the anointing you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you but just as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and <clears throat> is no lie just as he has taught you abide in him. So very, very similar to verse 20-ish. He's kind of restating what he's already said. 
abide. We have all been anointed by the Holy Spirit. We have been given discernment, the ability to recognize good and evil. Reality versus insanity. Jesus versus counterfeit Christ. It goes on, verse 28 and 29, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. He's, he's imploring us to abide. He's imploring us to cling to Jesus Christ. We know what happens as we cling to Jesus Christ. We know what it's like to be backslidden in times where maybe we've let go of that cable a little bit. I think what he's saying here is we don't want to be, we don't want Jesus to show up when we're backslidden. I, I don't think he's talking about a salvation issue, but I think he's talking about being able to walk into the throne room of God and have Jesus stand there and to be able to look him in the eye and say, you know, I, understanding that I've failed in many places, but be able to say that I have abode with him to the best of my possible ability. I don't want to be backslidden when Jesus returns. I want to be practicing righteousness. Jesus, that righteousness, a right living, being right before God. Jesus is the perfect representation of God the Father. He's a perfect example of righteousness. It says that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. As we grow in the Lord and walk with him more and more, we will see more righteousness manifest in our lives as evidence of being born in him. I love the assurance that we can have eternal life in Jesus Christ. I love the idea that we need to set our eyes on Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. If we put our eyes on Jesus Christ and keep them there and hang tough, when the Antichrist appears or an Antichrist attitude or whatever occult shows up at our door, the Lord, through his Spirit, is going to show us what is truth and what is false. It's protection, it's wisdom, it's confidence in the Lord. I love it. God is so good. We get to be brought in as adopted children and then verse three, verse one of chapter three, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God or children of God, sons and daughters of God. It's an incredible promise that we have. It goes beyond the, beyond the grave that we have life everlasting. We serve a great God, don't we? Did you guys remember the old Sunday school song, Behold What Manner of Love? You guys remember it? Think we can sing it in closing? Think so? We'll try. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us to us that we should be called the sons of God that we should be called the sons of God thank you father that we can be called sons and daughters of God Lord 
Help us to live in righteousness, Lord, I pray. Help us to abide in you. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. Help us to discern good from evil. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thanks for worshiping with us this morning.